this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. Hey, next up, you'll hear from Steve Harmer, one of the principal shareholders and founders of Blast Radius Group, a digital marketing agency that was started in Vancouver. Steve joined, there were just 10 employees, and by the time Steve sold the business with his partners, they had built the business up to 350 employees and $60 million worth of revenue. Um, lots of really interesting tidbits from this interview with Steve. Listen to how he structured his earnout and some of the tips that Steve provides in, in the way and, and, and maybe lessons learned in the way of structuring your earnout. He also talks about how to finance hyper growth. Um, you know, we get into a little bit of the details around how marketing services and professional services companies are generally valued. We also talk about using stock options and some of the pros and cons of using stock options. Here's Steve Harmer to tell you the rest of the story. Steve Harmer, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks. I'm happy to be here. So. Talk about Blast Radius. I understand that you joined very early. I mean, how did you come to become part of Blast Radius? Uh, good question. So I was um, connected to some of the founders of Blast Radius through uh, uh, this educational program that I did at the Vancouver Film School. And when I graduated from that program in new media, uh, I co-founded a company called Propulsion Media in Vancouver. Uh, and at the time, Blast Radius was going through a little bit of a change. One of their founders had left the company. And as we got going with Propulsion Media, uh, I was approached by the founders at Blast and asked if I would join them. Uh, and so ultimately, about six months into my company, I folded it into I joined Blast Radius as a partner, basically. And at the time, uh, they'd been, they just had finished their second year of business. This was January 1999. And they had uh, 10 people uh, in the company at the time. But because I was bringing business, uh, which I was able to bring Atlantic Records as a client, um, and because I was joining my business with theirs, I came in as, a, as an equal partner in the company. Got it. So you're a, you were a partner um in the company and you you kind of you didn't ca like pay cash to get in you brought clients and sort of folded your stuff in so basically you got your equity share you know, almost through the the business you were bringing that's that's right and and also i agreed to take the same kind of pay package that the partners at the time were taking which was extremely small. So there was a lot of sweat equity that went into uh, my first couple of years at Blast to help uh, sort of earn that equity piece. Got it. And so this is circa 1999. I'm trying to bring my mind back. This is kind of early days. Actually, it's sort of, you I mean, the dot-com boom is starting to really take shape at this time. What, what were you guys doing? What was Blast Radius offering at that time? 
so at that time, it was we were so Blastberries was always a pure play internet company, uh, and so at that time, it really was uh, website development primarily, so design and development. And it was interesting because I arrived at a pretty uh, unique inflection point in that I think in ninety seven, ninety eight, the company had you know, built this interesting portfolio of creative work, but it was still very small projects. Um, I happened to arrive at a time when we had the opportunity to pitch for our first kind of global brand, which was Casio. Uh, we did the, we won the business to, to do their G-Shock website redesign, which at the time the Casio G-Shock was a big product. I think um, of Casio as those old <laughs> Those old calculators, by the way. Is that the same yeah, company? It's the same company, so Japanese electronics company. Um, but the G-Shock watch was 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 sort of at the peak uh, of its popularity in uh, in that time period, and um, we delivered a really interesting project for them, which won some awards right away. And as a result of that, it opened the door for us to go and. Um, uh, engage with Nike, uh, and that was how we first got engaged with Nike. Which, how, do you, how do you go from G-Shock to Nike? That seems like a big leap. Uh, well, the Casio G-Shock website um, won a Gold Clio Award, uh, which is sort of a peak advertising award for digital um, because it was a pretty unique. Uh, there was a lot of flash and motion graphics, and sort of the way we we. we the whole website interface was actually a watch interface. And so it just, it, we got a lot of attention for that project. Um, and at the same time, um, I had been working with Atlantic records on some of their digital properties with my previous company and we got to do some more work with them. So we were doing, um, a bunch of band, uh, microsites and interactive CD-ROM work for those guys. Um, and it, so, so the, the interesting thing, I think, part of the story is that when I joined in 1999, I was the 11th employee of the company. By the end of that year, we had 65 employees. And by the end of the following year, we had 200 employees. So it was definitely a moment where everybody wanted uh, a web presence. We'd sort of gone from uh, every, you know, being a struggle to convince companies that they needed uh, an online property to you know, everybody uh, needing and rushing to get an online presence and and because we won some marquee business with, with the likes of nike and nintendo and electronic arts and atlantic records in those early years uh it opened a lot of doors for us and we were able to grow quite dramatically and how have you guys as a partnership divvied up responsibilities i mean what are you doing versus the other guys that are that are equity holders um, at that time, uh, I had responsibility for the product delivery team. So well, we were always doing custom development uh, and design. So I had the I had the responsibility for the uh, strategy team, the creative team, the technology team, and the project services team. So whatever was sold, my group was responsible for delivering effectively. So my I think my top my title was executive vice president of delivery. Um, Got yeah. It. So, and, and, and that was, you know, we had a New York office very early on. So most of the business we were delivering was to us clients. And so how many partners in the firm? Uh, there were five principal, um, owners. There, there was no, it wasn't a partnership in the classic sense. So it was a, it was a corporation. 
there were five principal shareholders, and then there were quite a few uh, uh, smaller shareholders, and all, all the way down to like, you know, we had a stock options plan eventually that um, encompassed, uh, you know, dozens, if not hundred, you know, hundred or more people. Interesting you bring up stock options. So what's been your experience with offering stock options to kind of rank and file employees? I'm not talking about the, the super senior people or the partners, but more, you know, the, the receptionist, the junior developer, like uh, what are the pros and cons of giving them stock options? Yeah, good question. So when we started with our stock option plan and we allocated, I think it was 20% of the company into our stock option pool, we decided that we would provide stock options to every single person in the company, um, including the receptionist. Uh, and so what we found in the process of the next year or two evaluating that program was some people uh, had a, a great deal of pride in owning options in the company, and it didn't necessarily matter what role they were in. Uh, other people really couldn't care less and valued cash uh, more than equity. Uh, and so we ended up uh, evolving to more of a two-tiered system, which would be either we could, you know, give somebody a grant of uh, of options and with potentially a slightly lower uh, uh, cash component to their compensation, uh, or we could give somebody a slightly higher cash component to their compensation and no equity. And usually that was left at the discretion of the employee. And if they took the higher cash, no equity, was that sort of a, a signal to management that they weren't lifers? Not necessarily. Sometimes, yes. But sometimes you could appreciate the fact that their cash flow needs were just uh, uh, pressing at that time in their lives. Maybe they you know, had young children or specific obligations uh, where cash was just the most important consideration for them at the time. Um, but sometimes, yes, it meant that they didn't have the same pride of ownership as some of the other employees. How are you guys financing the growth? To go from 10 to 200 employees in the space of two years, um, that's, that's rocket ship growth. How, how are you guys financing it? We, we were financing it entirely on cash flows from our consulting services. Um, we were very fortunate at that time that almost all of our client base was in the United States, paying us in US dollars, and almost all of our delivery and development resources were in Vancouver, being paid in Canadian dollars. And you think back to 1999, I, I, if I remember correctly, the Canadian dollar was somewhere around 65 cents. So that gave us a pretty nice cushion of margin. Um, and uh, and we, had great, we had great clients, we had marquee clients. I think the other thing I should mention is we were only ever doing B2C work. Uh, our, we focused Business to consumer. Business to consumer, yeah. So we made a, a conscious decision early on that we were going to focus on business to consumer. We were going to focus on the types of companies whose customer base would be early adopters of internet technology. Uh, which that led us, we had a very big practice in the video game industry with the likes of Nike, uh, sorry, with the likes of Nintendo and Electronic Arts, uh, Vivendi Universal and some others. Uh, but also, you know, Nike's client customer base were, were early adopters of internet technology, uh, Atlantic Records, and we, we had some other entertainment focus, again, early adopters of internet technology. 
Um, but big, you know, Fortune 500 clients that paid pretty well in U.S. dollars. When did the first discussion come up with the partners around potentially selling the company? Uh, it happened in two in two at two different moments. So obviously, there's the whole dot com. Uh, uh, period where valuations were getting uh, stretched and extreme and sometimes ridiculous. Uh, and there were a number of acquisitions and IPOs actually that happened in our sector and uh, in the digital marketing sector, uh, the likes of organic and Razorfish uh, went public uh, as did a couple of others. And there were some pretty head, heady valuations, but we felt like it was still early Um I remember one of our co-founders uh, saying, you know, just off the cuff, unless somebody offers us $100 million, we're, we're not going to come to the table. Um, so that whole period passed. Um, valuations, you know, more than normalized. Um, and we set about, you know, building a, a, a big business. Um, but then again, in around 2006, 2007, the market was heating up again, and there were quite a few, well, all of the competition in North America, all of the large-scale, pure-play internet marketing companies were either acquired by one of the large marketing holding companies, or uh, there was a majority private equity stake uh, made into those companies. So the private equity companies were acquiring a majority stake. And we looked around and we were the last large pure play internet marketing company standing in North America that was private and independent. How and big so, are you at this point, Steve? What's what kind of revenue, number of employees, that kind of stuff? Uh, we were probably 350 to 400 employees. Um, we had uh, offices in Vancouver, Toronto, New York, Seattle, San Francisco, London, Amsterdam. Um, and we were probably around 60 million in revenues at that time. Got it. Got it. Okay. Got it. So good size business for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, our, our pace of growth had definitely slowed down since the dot com days, but, um, you know, we had a good size business and we had still had marquee clients like Nike and BMW, Starbucks, Microsoft, uh, et cetera. And so it's 2006, 2007. Um, who was the first to raise the the idea? You obviously recognize you're the last independent company. Do you remember the board meeting or the coffee conversation where you know one of the partners said, "Hey, maybe, maybe this is the time to sell." Well, I think what happened was over the course of those uh, two years, and maybe and, and even prior to that, there had all there had there had been sort of a, a number of inbound requests for conversation about from an, from a potential acquirer. Are we interested? And, uh, we always brought those to the board. We always entertained the discussion. Um, and, but none of them were ever particularly interesting either strategically or financially or for whatever reason. Um, However, in 2007, we started getting more serious inquiries. And so when that happened, uh, we did have a discussion with the board um, and we decided to engage a um, sort of a boutique M&A firm uh, 
uh, out of New York that um, could help us with the process. Help us understand, because I mean, for people listening who haven't gone through this process, it would be helpful to know what you mean when you say kind of informal inbound conversations uh, versus the more serious inquiries. Like, what's the qualitative difference between the two? Um, well, I think the, the, you know, the first inbound conversations are just, you know, are you guys open to a discussion, uh, around, uh, potential acquisition? And generally we always said, yes, we're open to a discussion. And, and to be honest, it was primarily this, our CEO who would entertain those discussions. I generally was not involved in those discussions until, later on in the process when things were much more serious. I did sit on the board. So my, this, our CEO and I were both board members. Uh, we were the two sort of internal board members at last. Um, but generally he would have those discussions and, and, and for the most part, they didn't go very far. Um, so I would say all of them were, uh, you know, there was real intent, but there was not a real fit. So they did. So we didn't, we didn't pursue them. Um, when the first ones that came in that were more serious were from the large holding companies. Uh, and I can't even remember which was the first one. The large holding companies that we were, you know, that are, that are out there are like the Omnicom Group, uh, Publicis, WPP. Um, there's a couple of Dentsu Group. Uh, when, when those guys started approaching us, then it, it was obviously more serious. Why did you choose uh, to use an M and A firm? I mean, you had lots of offers. That th- I mean, the holding companies, I'm assuming, would have entertained with or without an M and A firm. Why did you choose to engage an M and A firm? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say we'd had lots of offers. We'd had lots of conversations. Mm-hmm. So we wanted. We we kind of realized where we were sitting strategically in North America as the last large uh, pure play internet company. And we just uh, felt like we should put more structure. We 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 agreed internally uh, as a as, so Blast Radius was probably about ninety percent employee owned, um, and so you know the key stakeholders agreed that we were ready to sell, um, and ma- sort of making that decision. Then we thought, okay, well, what's the best? way to do this without distracting us from our day-to-day business operations. And um, there was a relationship with a boutique firm in New York that had done some transactions in this space. I think they had brought a conversation to us um, kind of unsolicited a year a year before that. Um, and so we decided to engage them. Among the partners, your, your, the five sort of operating partners, um, was there unanimous uh, agreement that it was the right time? Were there dissenters that said, hey, we should stay independent? Like, how did that conversation go? Uh, there was unanimous agreement. So it was it was a pretty straightforward conversation. And did you guys talk about the number? Um, I mean, I think, let's see, this was 10 years ago. I'm trying to think back. Uh, I'm not sure that we had... A, particular number in mind. I think we had a sense because some of the transactions that had occurred uh, prior to ours, we had some insight into. What kind of multiples um, are companies trading for in, in, in the space at that time? 
So typically the deal structure uh, for buying a marketing company, uh, it, there are two components to it. One, one is there's, there's the overall price, which is generally determined by a multiple of operating profits. Before or after tax? Uh, I think in general after tax operating profits. Um, I think that's at least what the big holding companies do. Um, and there's typically an earnout period associated with those with those purchases. So, in general, that earnout period is five years. Um, so, unlike a software transaction, I think for for a software company, it can be one to two years. For a services business, it's more likely three to five, and I think the standard is five. Um, in our de- in our deal structure, we negotiated to a three year earnout term. Uh, so, it's a multiple of operating profits. Uh, during that period. During that period. So would there be a cash up front component in a typical deal? Yeah, typically there would be. So typically you would you would model out what you think the th- next, in, in our case, three years of operating profits would look like um, to try to arrive at an expected, ultimately, you know, a complete transaction price. Um, and then uh, in our case, um, it would have been about a approximately 50% of that up front. Got it. And then the other 50% would be paid if and when you hit those targets. Correct. Yeah. And was it was it binary, meaning if you didn't hit at least a minimum threshold, then you got nothing? Or was it always sort of a percentage? Like, was it, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it was always a percentage. I don't think there was a minimum. I think that it, it was just a multiple of operating, it was a straight multiple of operating profits. But to be honest, John, I, I'm not sure that I can remember the details of that. Got it. So the the market's uh, kind of consolidating. It sounds pretty hot. You guys hire an M&A firm. Then what happens? Uh, well, then we did get some um, definitive term sheets. Uh, we got a, we 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 basically had uh, two uh, companies in particular who were interested in acquiring Glass Radius. So. We had some visits from, uh, you know, CEOs of some of the uh, operating divisions within those companies. So uh, in our case, it was a company called Publicis and a company called WPP. Uh, WPP at the time was the largest marketing holding company in the world. And Publicis was the third largest marketing holding company in the world. One's a WPP is a a company out of the UK and Publicis is a company out of France, but they own like over a thousand marketing companies each, so they're they're pretty large um, organizations, and um, we were fortunate that we were that we were able to be sort of in the midst of a competitive bidding process from between those two companies. So we we got you know a few different rounds of term sheets from each of them. And and were you guys? I'm assuming kind of consciously playing one off the other and trying to get the to improve their terms. Yes. Yeah. I mean. We were in conjunction with, again, with the M&A firm that we had engaged. Got it. What was the yeah. biggest learning from that process for you on your end, Steve? I mean, like what what was new or what, what can you take away or provide advice for people in that kind of competitive bidding situation? Uh, well, I mean, for me, it was a, you know, there's a, it was a big learning experience in that just even understanding sort of the deal structures that they would put forward, um, 
try to understand in trying to understand what was really of value to them in terms of what they saw in our company and what they thought they could leverage to add incremental value to uh, to their business. I mean, what so. Yeah, they they had much larger companies in their portfolio than Blast Radius because they had a lot of big traditional uh, marketing companies. So WPP, for instance, has the YNR Brands Group. Uh, they have Gray Interactive. They have uh, Ogilvy. Um, you know, some much larger global uh, marketing brands. Um, so. It's not that we were going to bring scale, but what we did have was some very marquee clients in in Starbucks and Nike and Microsoft and BMW um, that they you know they looked at as opportunities to bring additional marketing services to those companies that they didn't have relationships with. But wouldn't wouldn't they have relationships with the likes of Nike and Starbucks through through one of the hundreds and hundreds of companies that they already own? Like what would the like why why buy a company if if one I'm assuming somebody's in the in the in the WPP group network is doing business with kind of every company including Starbucks and Nike. Uh- no, that that wouldn't be that wouldn't be totally accurate. So not certainly not with every company and not with every big global brand. Um, they definitely go very deep into some companies and into some verticals. Um, but I don't think WPP had any any meaningful relationship with Starbucks, for example. Um, and some of them they were you know were difficult for them because they had a very very large global relationship with Ford. So the fact that we were at BMW didn't really bring benefit to them because they couldn't build out a they couldn't build out a massive relationship with BMW just because of the competition uh, issues. But I think the other thing that's important, John, is that it is the expertise that we had. So uh, you know, in two thousand and seven. Digital was starting to take more and more of the marketing uh, budgets. Um, so, you know, if you think from you know from '97 to 2007, the percentage of the marketing budget that was spent on digital channels continued to grow, and it was the fastest growing sector of the marketing mix. Uh, and so, they needed as much as the clients, more than the clients, really. They needed the expertise in being able to offer those digital solutions to their client base. And that's fundamentally why they're buying companies like Blast Radius. How did you ultimately end up in the arms of WPP Group? WPP Group, I keep saying three Ps, there's only two. Um, I mean, ultimately, they had the better offer uh, at the end of the process. They had the better offer. I think both financially and I think also in the terms of the period of lockup, uh, post, you know, initial sale, post closing. Um, but it was a tough decision. I mean, there were some, some interesting strategic alignments, uh, within publicists that were harder to see within WPP, uh, in terms of where we would land inside of, you know, which operating division of those companies. Um, but ultimately, you know, the financial incentive at, to, to take the deal with WPP was significant enough that it made it relatively easy to, to decide. And clearly they wanted your customers and your employees, the expertise. Was there also some consideration that you were giving to what they could bring to you? So they had this relationship with Ford. At, at, uh, was it publicist that had the relationship with Ford? Uh, WPP, WPP had the relationship with so, Ford, yeah. 
I mean, were you saying equally, well, maybe we can go after some of their clients and make our earnout even easier to hit? Yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was the hope. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we had to do as part of that transaction was decide where within WPP we were going to reside. Um, we did have uh, so WPP has uh, different holding companies. Um, JWT, and I don't know if it's changed since then, but JWT Group was one of them. The YR Brands Group was another. Um, the M, Group M was a third, which is really their um, pure media uh, division, which wouldn't have been a fit for us. Um, and then Ogilvy is a fourth. And so uh, we had to make a choice as to where we would where we would fit inside of their network. And that was one of the challenging parts of the whole deal was trying to figure that out and also figure out, you know, where would we be best aligned from a culture perspective, strategically, from an ability to get to our earnout targets. Um, uh, and it wasn't an easy decision. Um, be, I mean, one of the disadvantages with being uh, being acquired late in the overall macro process was that Ogilvy already had a big digital group. Uh, Wonderman had acquired a dozen or so different companies in the previous few years around the world. Uh, we were the largest digital, but but there were lots of other competitors in, in the mix. Um, so the music had stopped and all the chairs were being taken up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, you know, looking back, I think that that was um, maybe where we, uh, I don't know if to say we made a mistake, but that, that was probably the hardest part of the transaction was finding the right place to reside within that network. What would you do differently if you had the whole thing to do over again? Mm -hmm. um, good question. What would we do differently? I mean, I think what I just was alluding to there, I think, is is in in hindsight, we ended up being aligned, you know, in, in one in, within one uh, underneath one brand, um, and um, which is Wonderman. Um, and I think ultimately that didn't serve our company particularly well, uh, in the long term. Um, because that, because Wonderman had grown quite dramatically through acquisition, uh, there were quite a few integration challenges that we faced and ultimately the promise of access to clients, um, didn't really materialize during the three years post, uh, sale and, and earnout during the earnout period. Um, and if anything, it was almost more competitive within the Wonderman group of companies. Um, you know, I don't want to disparage, but I would say it was somewhat dysfunctional. And so, uh, could, had we aligned somewhere else, it's hard to say, cause I, you know, <laughs> we, we didn't live anywhere else and we didn't, we, we, so we don't have that experience, but it, it was difficult. It was more difficult than we had expected. Um, so I think, you know, finding your strategic fit inside a much, much larger organization uh, is really uh, a, a, an important thing to spend the time and the energy trying to work on. And, and if you could, if you could 
do it in a way where you could sort of test the waters before having to make a final commitment, uh, that would be even better. With your earnout, if if you leave the company, do you forfeit in your deal any of the incremental proceeds or do they separate the role of employee versus shareholder and you could still stand to gain the earn out if you were not an employee? Yeah. Um, what they did was they named uh, uh, five key employees um, and provided them with different contracts than, they, than all of the rest of the employee group base uh, within Blast Radius. I happen to be one of those five. Um, and I think in retrospect, that might be another thing that would be smart to do a little bit differently in the deal structure, um, because there was no incremental compensation for any of the five people that were absolutely required to remain. And, and if they did not remain, they would have forfeited a substantial portion of, their, uh, of the deal, um, whereas other employees um, who, you know, were some, in some cases, larger, uh, equity holders in the company, um, did not have those requirements and, and did leave, uh, during the earnout with no consequence to them. Uh, so yeah, so in my case, it would have, it would have been, um, it would have been detrimental. How did that, that must've made you feel like you were kind of left holding the bag when these partners who brought you to the dance together, kind of left well, early. So, yeah, I mean, some of them did not. Uh, you know, some of them were had the same terms and conditions that I did. Uh, yeah, it, 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 you know, again, they, uh, they're all good people, and I have a lot of respect for all of them. So I, that, there was nothing intentional about it. It just it was an outcome of the way the transaction uh, occurred. Um, so I don't begrudge them. Uh, if it had been intentional, then I think it might I'd feel differently. But, um, you know, it's all water under the bridge at this point. What was the three years like being an employee again for, in this case, a, a very large company? Well, actually, so to be quite clear, I, had a very, I, I went through a very unique uh, period because I actually did leave um, before the internet was over um, because of, I had, there was a medical emergency in my family. Uh, my, in my immediate family and one of my children. Um, and so I did leave uh, and ended up going back after taking uh, a couple of years off and completing my, my commitment, my three-year commitment. Um, uh, uh, after, so after having taken a break, basically. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that was... Uh, I was somewhat unique in that regard. How did uh, I did I, I did have to go back and fulfill another two years in order to um, secure uh, my 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 earnout portion of the payment. Was that contractually kind of contemplated a medical emergency in, in a direct family, or was that uh, was that something that you had to deal with with WPP kind of in real I time? Had, I had to negotiate it in real time. It wasn't contractually contemplated. That's interesting. Yeah. You, yeah. Know, you never think these things are going to hit, but that's uh, truly fascinating that that would um, that would crop up in that time and, and that it hadn't yeah. been contemplated. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Another learning. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. It's hard to imagine all the edge cases of what might happen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Interesting. So what are you doing now? What's, what, what's the, what's the, what uh, well, I've done a few things since, uh, since I left WPP in 2013. Um, but, uh, most recently, um, I have co-founded a blockchain consultancy, enterprise blockchain consultancy called Genesis B. Uh, and I've done that, um, with three of my former blast radius colleagues, hmm. um, uh, kind of two silent partners who have, uh, who have another, uh, digital product, um, design company out of Vancouver that's going, uh, that's sort of grown to about 50 people. Uh, and then myself and another former Blast Radius colleague here in Toronto. Uh, and we're just at the early stages. We've, we've recently launched, uh, Genesis B and we, you know, we kind of looked at, uh, what's happening in blockchain and other emerging tech area as the internet was back in 1997. We, it, there are a lot of interesting parallels. It sort of feels like enterprise adoption of blockchain is just starting to happen. Uh, there's, you know, there's a shortage of talent, uh, and expertise. Um, there's an opportunity. We believe there's an opportunity to build a premium blockchain consulting service that is not in, 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 in some ways dissimilar to what blast radius was to the internet. What, uh, what Genesis B can be to, to blockchain. So, I guess when uh, I, when I think of blockchain, I think of like Bitcoin and mm -hmm. like, you know, mafia bosses using it to pay <laughs> off their, like, is this a legit thing or is this, I mean, I, like so, educating. So the short answer, the short answer is yes. Right. So I think cryptocurrency has done a great, uh, service to uh, blockchain and that they've introduced, it's introduced blockchain to What's the masses the difference between the two cryptocurrency and blockchain. What's the difference? Uh, well, so, um, what I, what we're focused on, which is enterprise blockchain implementation, uh, ultimately is not about the public, um, blockchains that you see like Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, that are focused on currency exchange or some digital currency exchange, let's say these are focused on things like, uh, supply chain management. Um, you know, so if you think of, of, of the Bitcoin, uh, blockchain, there you have a digital asset, which happens to be a representation of money. But you have all these other digital assets in the enterprise, whether it's a product, whether it's a part for your for your BMW, or it's a you know a, 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 a crate of spinach coming off of a farm somewhere. There's all kinds of other digital assets. Uh, sorry, other assets that can be represented digitally on a blockchain and tracked and secured uh, and shared uh, in a in a new manner in an aut more automated and decentralized way uh, that's never before been possible in the enterprise. Um, and, and so the underpinnings of, uh, of blockchain, which provide cryptography for security, uh, a decentralized ledger uh, and consensus mechanisms for shared trust uh, can all be leveraged to create new systems in the enterprise and, and ultimately driving at a lot more efficiency in transaction and asset management. It's a fascinating world, and and I'll have to wait and hear, hear the rest of the story because <laughs> it goes over my head, but I'm sure it doesn't go over your head. So, I uh, I appreciate you spending the time to share it with me. Where's Where's the best place for people to connect with you? Does Genesis have like a website yet, or what? Where? Uh, yeah, yeah. So GenesisB.com. 
Uh, Genesis, our, like the rock like band, like the book of the Bible, or like the rock the band, <laughs> like the Bible. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, G-E-N-E-S-I-S-B. dot com. I uh, can reach me there, um, and uh, yeah, that's probably the best place. Info at genesisb.com. Awesome, Steve Armour. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.